It is Monday, April 13, 2020. It's Easter Monday. And thank you for joining us today on the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. We have three items for you today. We start with Monique Polak, who presents her book, Passover Festival of Freedom. Now, she um, grew up in Montreal, and in the book, she talks about the origins of Passover, the intricacies of a Seder, and stories from her youth around the Seder table. There were loads of prayers, long, long prayers in Hebrew, so none of it meant anything to me personally. So when the opportunity came to write a book about Passover, I said, yeah, but I have to admit that I'll be learning along with my readers. We then have a meditation, a guided meditation, with the amazing Boris. That's Boris Cherniak. He'll be walking you through some ways that you can relax with some safe steps. I want you to think of your mind as a computer that can be commanded to relieve stress and anxiety and be programmed to relax. In a moment, I will guide you through steps that will relax you. Finally, we end today's episode with a repeat of the talk given by music librarian Farah Muhammad about the composer Antonio Vivaldi. You'll hear that he was a violinist and a composer and that he also taught students. For most of his life, Vivaldi was a violin teacher, composer, and conductor at the music school of La Pieta, an institution for orphaned or illegitimate girls in Venice. Every Sunday and holiday, about 40 young women presented a concert of orchestral and vocal music in the chapel. Now here's Monique Polak talking about her book, Passover Festival of Freedom. Enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Monique Polak, and the Cote St. Luke Library invited me to do this recording that you could listen to um, during the pandemic, so to keep you a little bit occupied and maybe to provide a dose of something literary. And um, I write books for teenagers and younger kids too. And one of my books is called Passover Festival of Freedom. And it's a book you can find at the Cote St. Luke Library. It's published by Orca Book Publishers. That's my main publisher. And um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the book today, how it came to be, and uh, what it means to me and what Passover means to me. And it's very nice to be doing this because um, I'm talking to you during the uh, Passover festivity um, this year. So so here it goes. All right. So um, my story begins in a very personal way. And um, that's because my publisher, I had, I had one of my books um, was about my mom's experience. It's a, it's a novel, but it was based on my mom's experience in a Nazi concentration camp. And I fictionalized her experience and wrote it up in a book called What World is Left? So my publisher, Orca, um, they didn't know much about my personal life. They figured, well, I'm sure a woman like Monique must know something about Passover. And they had an idea that it would be nice to have a series of books about religious festivals. So they called me up and said, Monique, why don't you do the one on Passover? And I had to tell them the truth, which was I really didn't know very much about Passover. So this is where my, my story begins, the backstory of how I wrote the book. Um, in my family, um, we didn't have Passover. Um, I think it was my mom's reaction to the Holocaust. She came from Holland. My dad, too. My father is half Jewish. My mother was completely Jewish. But she didn't grow up in a very religious family. Her grandfather had been religious, but not her own mom and dad. They didn't go to synagogue. Um, the Jews in Holland, at least many of them, including my mom's family, um, became very assimilated. So, you know, she knew she was Jewish, but it didn't mean very much to her. And her real sort of um, sense of being Jewish came ironically and tragically, really, with the Holocaust. And she spent nearly three years in Theresienstadt, a Nazi concentration camp. After the war, um, she ended up moving to North America, and eventually she got married to my dad. They had met in Holland, and they started a family 
um, in Montreal. And another irony is that the family moved to Cote St. Luke. My parents moved to Cote St. Luke where the three of, uh, three Polak children were born. Um, so it was a very Jewish neighborhood already. And, and yet we didn't do the Jewish holidays. So Passover didn't mean much to me personally. I had a good friend who was Orthodox and often on Passover, I was invited to her house for supper, um, for the Seder. And uh, it also, I mean, I was happy to go. The food was good. I liked matzah. The, her mom made chicken soup. It was, was very good. There were loads of prayers, long, long prayers in Hebrew. So none of it meant anything to me personally. So when the opportunity came to write a book about Passover, I said, yeah, but I have to admit that I'll be learning along with my readers. And that was a really um, like a kind of a life changing experience for me, I have to say, because I really I really found out what it means. And um, also every year since then, I have been celebrating Passover. So I'm 59 years old and uh, I'm kind of a, a newcomer to the whole Passover. Okay, so I'm going to what I'm going to do today is read you little bits and pieces from my from my book to tell you what I was up to when I was doing it. So at the beginning of the book there's uh there's the story that I just told you and there's a family photo and my mom died 3 years ago so it's pretty special for me to look back and and see the picture and you know she she was she and my dad and my daughter attended that first Passover that I uh, that I, I made at my house as a result of doing this book. All right, so I'm going to read you a little bit called What's Passover All About? It's from my chapter one, and I think that maybe you'll already know this, so I won't spend too long on chapter one, depending on what your level of knowledge is about Passover. Here goes. Every spring, Jewish families around the world gather to celebrate Passover. At special holiday meals called seders, Jewish families say prayers, drink wine, grape juice for the kids, and eat foods such as matzah. But most importantly, Jews retell the remarkable story of Passover. And for me, I have to say that this, I'm not reading from the book, I'm, I'm telling you something again. This is why I love Passover so much, because, because I'm a writer and Passover is about a story and it's about retelling a story. Okay, I continue with, with my book. Matzah, a bread made without yeast, is not the only special food eaten at Passover. In fact, of all the holidays on the Jewish calendar, Passover has the greatest number of symbolic foods and rituals. By retelling the Passover story year after year, Jews are reminded how, more than 3,000 years ago, their ancestors emerged from slavery to become free men and women. The Passover story reminds us that the freedom to be who we are and to practice our religion, whatever that may be, is a great gift it also teaches us that if we summon our courage and look out for each other, we can endure and overcome the most challenging circumstances. According to biblical scholars, the story of Passover began sometime between 1300 and 1200 BCE, which means before the Common Era. During this period, the Jews, who were then known as Israelites, lived in Egypt. The ruler of ancient Egypt was called the Pharaoh. There were pharaohs who treated the Israelites kindly, but at the time the Passover story begins, the Pharaoh who ruled over Egypt was a cruel man who mistreated the Israelites. There is some disagreement about the name of this cruel Pharaoh, but biblical commentary suggests he was Merneptah, son of Ramses II, Merneptah forced the Jews into slavery, making them do hard labor from early morning until late at night. Imagine grueling workdays spent in the hot sun, hauling the giant stones needed to build the great pyramids. If the Israelites did not work hard enough, they were beaten. The Israelites could not continue living under these conditions. More than anything else, they longed for freedom. So Moses, their leader, 
went to the Pharaoh to ask permission for the Israelites to leave Egypt so they could make their way to the promised land now called Israel. The Pharaoh refused because God was angry with the Pharaoh for not setting the Israelites free. He punished the Pharaoh by sending a series of plagues or calamities upon Egypt. Still the Pharaoh did not relent. He refused to grant the Israelites their freedom until God sent his 10th plague. For his 10th plague, God sent his angel of death to kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian family, even the Pharaohs. But God spared the Israelites, warning them to mark their doorposts with the blood of a lamb so that the angel of death would know to pass over their homes. This explains the origin of the word Passover. So I think in terms of the, the meaning of Passover, that's where all that's maybe enough for me to, to read from the book there. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit now about the kind of work that I did that goes into the book. And before I leave you today, I'll do another little reading and well explain to you why I'm going to choose the part that I'm going to choose. One thing I, I was thinking that would be maybe interesting for you to know is that Nonfiction for children, because this is a nonfiction book that I wrote, and it's geared for kids, hoping that you find it interesting too, and your adults who are listening. But it could be read to a child as young as maybe, maybe ten, but even a younger one who who's a smart one, I guess, or likes to sit still and listen to a story. Um, but when I was a kid, nonfiction was extremely limited and usually kind of boring. And now the, the, the uh, landscape has really changed in children's publishing. Nonfiction is what we call hot. So it's really moving. It sells well. And one of the reasons is that nonfiction books now are not like they were when I was a kid. They don't look like a textbook. They're full of photographs. They're colorful. They have charts. Um, in fact, I've written another nonfiction book after this one called I Am a Feminist. And I'm working on another one. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to tell you what that one's about because it's under contract, but another nonfiction book that uh, has to be ready by, uh, by this coming August. So if you're interested yourselves in writing, you might think about nonfiction, right? And some people like, some people enjoy it. Like I also write fiction, which means I make my stories up. What I like about nonfiction is it appeals to the teacher in me because I also teach. I teach at Marinopolis College here in Montreal but how to make a subject interesting and accessible to kids. And as I indicated before, what I did, I, I think, was I learned about Passover myself, and then I, I tried to give the reader the same experience so that the reader would learn about Passover along with me. Okay, so I did a, there's a sections at the end of the book. Well, there's sections about the food. There's sections about, there's a big section about Passover around the world. And that was very fun for me to research because I, I spoke, for instance, to a rabbi in Italy and learned how the foods were a little bit different and so on. So that was, that was a joy. I also did a section on Passover in action. So the kinds of things that go on, you know, um, fundraising, the things that kids do, helping out families who have who, who are less um, prosperous, who don't have, who can't afford uh, everything that's required for a seder meal, um, helping refugees, for instance. So that I found really that was very satisfying because it's not it's not just about one family right? It's about looking out for each other. And then because of my background and my family's background that I already explained to you, I was very interested in talking to Holocaust survivors and knowing what their experience of Passover was. So I wanted to know what their, what their, what their memories of Passover from before the Holocaust were like, and then did they continue to celebrate Passover, and in what, in what ways, and how was it changed? So I'm going to read a little bit now from the book. Um, about It's about a man named Ben Younger. 
And um, Ben, he's, he died a, a couple of years ago, I believe. Um, but he was, I have to say that I feel like he became my friend uh, while I was doing the research. And he was very kind and very open. And I'm looking at his picture now in the book as I'm reading to you. I interviewed him at, um, he was living in a senior's residence in Dollar Days or Mo. And he, like I told you, he was very open about his experience and how the Holocaust affected him spiritually. Ben Zion, he calls himself Ben, Ben Zion Younger, younger is nearly 90. But when he remembers celebrating Passover as a child in Romania, his brown eyes shine like a boy's. Somehow, when I listen to his story, I see past Benzion's lined face and the bald patches on his scalp. The more he tells, the easier it is to imagine Benzion, who has used the name Ben since he immigrated to Canada in 1948 as a mischievous boy growing up in a loving, tight-knit family. Passover was the nicest holiday for me because of the food. It was the best food ever, Ben says. Because Ben's father raised geese in the small town of Sapinta, the family often ate goose at Passover. And of course, there was always matzah, the unleavened bread eaten by Jews around the world during the Passover festival. In Sapinta, where Ben lived until he was 17, there was a special bakery that opened only for Passover. Local Jewish families placed their orders for matzah well in advance of the holiday. Ben's mother, Ruchel, always ordered 20 kilograms, which is 44 pounds, of matzah, enough for herself and her husband, Gitman, their three children. Ben had two younger sisters, Pearl and Rezala, and her mother, Ben's grandmother, Esther Ita, who lived with the family. Ben remembers accompanying his mother to the bakery. My mother, brought a white bed sheet to collect the matzah. When we got home, she tied the four corners of the sheet together and hung it from the ceiling so the matzah wouldn't break. We stood on a chair to reach the matzah, he said. And now I'm interrupting my own story to tell you it's these kinds of details that I love as a writer and that hopefully the reader will love too. And it really like makes us, it brings us to that to that house, right, where the matzah was hanging in a sheet. It is not, I continue, it is not only Ben's memories of matzah that make his eyes shine. The same thing happens when Ben recalls sitting at the Seder table and listening to his father recount the biblical story behind Passover. My father would explain how Moses led the Jewish people out of Egypt and freed us. My favorite part was when the sea parted so the Jewish people could cross, he said. I really believed that was true. Ben and his family reclined on pillows at the Seder table. Big pillows, he recalled. This custom is also part of the Passover tradition. Sitting relaxed on pillows is a sign of freedom. And then I have another, go to a new chapter in my book, and it's called Passover Before and After the Holocaust. And I'm going to read to you a little bit more. In chapter one, you met my friend Ben Younger. He is a Holocaust survivor, the only one in his immediate family. His parents, two sisters, and grandmother perished. The Holocaust shook Ben's faith in God. Though he still attends synagogue in Dollar des Ormeaux, the Montreal suburb where he and his wife Doris live on the high holidays and on Saturdays to mark the Sabbath, Ben is far less religious than he was as a boy growing up in Sapinta, Romania. I'm not religious anymore. The Holocaust killed a lot of beliefs I had, he says. Food plays an important role in Ben's memories of his family Passovers in Sapinta. Ben's favorite dish was a simple one, matzah with milk. He remembers crumbling matzah into milk, then putting the mixture on the stove until it turned mushy. It was like a cereal 
I still make it sometimes, especially at Passover, he says. When Ben was 17, he and his family were rounded up by the Nazis and deported to Auschwitz concentration camp by cattle car, a train car designed for transporting livestock, not people. This was in 1944, but even after all these years, Ben's memories of the three-day journey remain sharp. It was a nightmare, he says. He and his fellow passengers had no food, no water, no bathroom, and no idea where they were headed. So maybe because my time is coming to an end with you, I won't tell you everything that happened to Ben, but you know already that he survived. But one thing which I wanted to tell you is that the role of family was so important in Ben's life. He and his wife, Doris, have three children or had three children, but the children are all alive and well, and five grandchildren. And I just want to tell you what Ben said. They are my everything, Ben says. This is the greatest thing in my life. And I continue reading a little more from the book. At Passover, Ben's youngest daughter, Judy, hosts the Seder at her home in Cote St. Luke in Montreal's West End. We all sing and take turns reading the Haggadah. Our youngest grandchild, Michelle, asks the four questions, Ben says. So before I leave you and uh, send you off to, to return to the world, the real world, um, I just want to make one last comment about Passover this year. It's been so different for all of us. Most of us are either celebrating Passover with our nuclear families, the people that we live with in our homes, and many people are doing Zoom or some kind of internet Passover. And even that is, I think, shows something not just of the resilience of the Jewish people, but the resilience of all of us and the importance of stories and the, the reminder again that um, Passover is about the right to celebrate our religion, the freedom to do that, that we can do that, and the freedom to do the right thing and to look after each other. And during the time of the pandemic that we're living through now, we're doing the right thing. As a teacher, I'm, I get a little bit emotional when I think about my teenage students and what they're doing because they're staying home and they're concentrating on their homework and, I guess, housework and trying to get through it with their families. But they're doing this to protect the older members of the community, including me and including perhaps you too. So I think we have a lot to be grateful for and we do have freedom and we have freedom to make the right decisions and, you know, like like the hard times in, in our people's history, this too will pass. So I wish you a happy Passover and uh, I hope you have lots of good books to read and maybe you want to write a story too, think about fiction or think about nonfiction like I talked about today and uh, all the best. Okay, thanks for listening. Hello and welcome. My name is Boris Cherniak. I will be your host on a journey, a journey into the back of your mind, a journey of imagination, where by using hypnotic techniques, you will reach directly into your subconscious and control and eliminate stress and anxiety created by the world events, all with a simple thought. I want you to think of your mind as a computer that can be commanded to relieve stress and anxiety and be programmed to relax. In a moment, I will guide you through steps that will relax you. I will direct your attention away from the world around you to inward, paying attention to your mind and body. And use hypnotic techniques to change your thoughts to be positive and productive. You will always remain safe and in control. And in fact, you will have even more positive thoughts, having listened to my voice from this moment on. After listening to my words, you will feel refreshed and re-energized. 
feeling positive, and taking appropriate actions to stay happy and healthy. Whenever this broadcast ends or is interrupted, the positive effects will last as long as you want them. I invite you to be seated. Get your body relaxed. Find a comfortable spot where you can listen to the sound of my voice, chair, couch, or a bed. If possible, make the sound fill the room on a speaker or listen intently to accept every positive suggestion. If you find yourself drifting off, that is absolutely fine, as the positive words will stay and still be absorbed. I will use a simple phrase. Let it sink in. This phrase will signify to your subconscious mind to absorb the suggestions and soak them in like a sponge. Let it sink in. Soon, I will count backwards from 10 all the way down to number one. And as the numbers go down, you will find yourself relaxing more and more. Let it sink in. Anytime you hear me mention the word relax, you will find yourself drifting off deeper and deeper into the realm of relaxation. Picture yourself, if you will, in an elevator, in a 10-story building, or on top of a staircase with 10 steps leading down. As the elevator descends, or in your mind, you take a step down, you're going to find yourself drifting off deeper and deeper into the realm of relaxation. Each number represents a level of relaxation. Number one is the absolute and ultimate amount of relaxation. Once you reach it, all the suggestions given to you by me will be absorbed to improve your life. Where the kind of 10 starting to descend. Make yourself comfortable. Clear your mind. Make it an absolute blank. Focus your mind on one idea. And this idea is relaxation. And let it sink in. Anytime you hear me mention the word relax, it is going to take you down more and more, relaxing you even deeper. Relax every muscle in your body, starting with your forehead, your cheeks, your chin. Let your face droop, and as it does, you're drifting up deeper and deeper into the realm of relaxation, and let it sink in. Every suggestion given to you becomes the absolute and total reality. Let your mind and body link together as one, it'll make you really heavy and relaxed. Listen to the music. Let it flow through you like a wave of relaxation. Let it sink in. Every suggestion given to you by me will leave a lasting impression in your mind and replace all of the negative thoughts with positive ones. And we're going down, relaxing more and more. Your body's getting heavier and heavier. You may even find that your eyelids are getting tired. That is absolutely fine. Let them. We are reaching number nine. Take a deep breath and breathe out. Let it sink in. Each breath that you will take from now on will get you more and more relaxed. Each time you breathe out, you breathe out tension. Let it sink in. Anytime you hear me mention the word relax, you will find yourself drifting off and relaxing even further. More than you are now. 
we're going down to number eight. Feel the relaxation setting in. It is moving down to your shoulders. And you will find that your body is very gently starting to tingle. Your eyelids feel like they weigh a thousand tons. They feel like a big lead weight pushing down. And even if you try to keep your eyes open, they don't want to stay open. They will close all by themselves as you are relaxing even further. We're moving to number seven. The relaxation is moving down even more, spreading through the upper part of your body, reaching your chest. It's becoming absolutely impossible to keep your eyes open, but that relaxes you even more. Let it sink in. You are so incredibly relaxed. Each breath that you take relaxes you even more. And each time you breathe out, you breathe out tension. And we're going down to number six. Number one is the absolute and ultimate relaxation. It will take you to the ultimate depths of your mind where time stands still and all the tension in your body has been completely removed. Take another breath and breathe out and let it sink in. Each breath that you take gets you to relax even more. Each time you breathe out, you breathe out tension. And we're the kind of five. Eyelids closed and very, very heavy. The relaxation is moving down towards your waist. You can feel it. The tips of your fingers are very gently tingling. Yet it is barely noticeable. We are going down to number four. Each nerve, every muscle, and every fiber in your body is becoming loose and limp. The relaxation is starting to take over your whole body. Your thighs are very, very heavy. You are sinking into your place of rest. Body so heavy and tired. So incredibly relaxed. Nothing else matters. Nothing at all. Time stands still. We're the kind of three. Going down to number two. There's no tension left in your body. And the longer you listen to my voice, the more your mood improves the better you feel about yourself. And the farther down we go, you are relaxing even further. You are feeling absolutely wonderful. And though your body is so incredibly heavy, your mind is floating in a cloud, a cloud of relaxation where all the tension is completely removed. Take another breath. And breathe out. Let it sink in. Each breath that you take relaxes you even more. And each time you breathe out, you breathe out tension. And we're finally reaching number one. The absolute and ultimate in relaxation. You can feel your tension leaving you. The relaxation sets in through your whole body. Even the tips of your toes are incredibly loose and limp. And let it sink in. The word relax is spreading through you. And take a deep, deep breath and take a moment to enjoy. Each breath that you take still puts you even deeper and deeper sleep. 
from now on, whenever you wake up in the morning, whenever you get up from uh, any time that you take a nap, you will find yourself feeling more and more refreshed, feeling good about you, feeling so absolutely marvelous. Now here are some important suggestions. Your mind is relaxed and will continue to be at ease. Long after this broadcast is finished, you will find yourself cautious about world events and take every step to protect your well-being. This will include washing your hands thoroughly after being outside your house. You will keep appropriate distance from others during the time required to stay safe and secure and limit when and how you touch your face to eliminate possibility of any contamination. These are normal steps of taking care of yourself. From now on, you will find yourself staying positive and logical in situation and always take care of yourself. And this will translate into improved personal health and attitude of well-being. You will take pride in your accomplishments and always have a wonderful demeanor and outlook. And we're the count of one. Feeling so absolutely marvelous. Feeling phenomenal about being you. Now take a deep breath and take a second or two to enjoy yourself and let all of the suggestions given to you settle in so that you can use them whenever you want them and bring up the positive attitude and a smile on your face every time that you are ready for it. We're the kind of one. What I want you to do right now is take another deep breath because as we go up, or go back up to number 10. You will be coming out more and more, becoming more and more aware of your surroundings, feeling phenomenal, feeling better than you ever have felt before. We're the kind of one starting to move up. You will not be fully awake until the count of 10. Now we're moving to number two, three, the way back up is so much faster and so much easier. You will not be fully awake until a count of 10, but when you do, you will feel refreshed, re-energized, feeling wonderful and positive with a smile on your face. Whether kind of three moving at number four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and finally, completely aware of everything around you at the count of 10. That's right. Keep dreaming. The dreams are always feeling phenomenal. I hope you enjoyed this guided meditation. My name is Boris. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of A Musical Moment. My name is Farah Mohamed, and I am the music librarian at the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Public Library. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about Vivaldi, poetry, and music. Antonio Vivaldi based the music of his Four Seasons Concertos on a set of poems or sonnets. No one knows who wrote the poetry, and Vivaldi may have done it himself, but there's no doubt that his music was composed to follow exactly along with the words. Here is a sonnet called Spring, in which Vivaldi bases his first movement of his first concerto. And the poem goes like this. Spring has arrived, birds welcome it with their sighs, and flowing brooks murmur sweetly, touched by the breath of gentle breezes. Here are Vivaldi's birds. 
These poems are sonnets, each 14 lines long, first a group of eight lines, then a group of six lines, and all the lines rhyme in a certain way. Since Vivaldi was Italian, his sonnets rhyme in that language and not in English. After a little more of the concerto's opening melody, Vivaldi brings on the babbling brooks and breezes, and here we get an idea of his musical description of brooks and breezes. But of course, spring is not all about birds and breezes. It also involves April showers that bring on the May flowers. The spring poem continues. Dark clouds blanket the sky. Thunder and lightning announce a storm. And here is Vivaldi's musical idea of a thunderstorm. It is a huge storm with lots of thunder and lightning. Then the poem goes on to say that once the storm quiets down, the birds take up their lovely songs once again. Take a listen to the whole movement in its entirety. But before we do, I'd like to say a few words about Vivaldi, the composer. Antonio Vivaldi was born in 1678 and was a towering figure of the late Italian Baroque. Born in Venice, his father was a violinist at the famed St. Mark's Cathedral. Along with his musical training, Vivaldi prepared for the priesthood. He took holy orders at the age of about 25, but poor health caused him to leave the ministry after a year. Because of his religious background and his red hair, Vivaldi was known as the Red Priest, or as we say in Italian, Il Prete Rosso. For most of his life, Vivaldi was a violin teacher, composer, and conductor at the music school of La Pieta, an institution for orphaned or illegitimate girls in Venice. Every Sunday and holiday, about 40 young women presented a concert of orchestral and vocal music in the chapel. Vivaldi was famous and influential as a virtuoso violinist and composer, but his popularity waned shortly before his death in 1741, and he died in poverty. Although he has been acclaimed during his lifetime, he was almost forgotten for 200 years after his death. The Baroque revival of the 1950s established his reputation among modern music lovers. So, as promised, here is the first movement of the Spring Concerto of Vivaldi's Four Seasons.
Vivaldi's third movement is a lively number and quite bucolic in nature, conjuring up images of fields and flowers and sunshine. The final lines of the sonnet is as follows. To the best of sounds of a bagpipe, nymphs and shepherds dance in their favorite spot as spring appears in all its brilliance. Vivaldi begins the third movement of the Spring Concerto imitating the bagpipes with its characteristic drone played by the cellos and basses. Then comes the dancing nymphs personified here by the solo violin. Music describing the shepherds picks up the pace evoking images of laughter, frivolity, and joy. So let's take a listen and hear how Vivaldi is able to convey these feelings in his music.
If you like what you've heard today, then please come to my upcoming lecture called Viva Vivaldi, where I will talk more on the life and music of Antonio Vivaldi. This will be held at the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Public Library on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020 at 2 p.m. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this musical moment, and I hope that you can join me for many more in the future.